Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to another episode of the Love in Action podcast. Glad you could join us. So let me ask you a simple question. One that I know the majority of you will probably say yes to. Is there drama in your workplace? What about conflict? Is it a weekly event at your company? You see, drama in the workplace can be a devastating blow. Listen to this. According to Gallup, negative conflict drains the U.S. economy by how much? Oh, just a, in the ballpark, about $350 billion a year in lost productivity and wasted energy. You know, it's inevitable. People are going to struggle against each other or with themselves to get what they want, causing relationships and even entire systems to unravel. So what's your view of conflict? Do you hope to never have to face it? Do you run away from it? In a brand new book called Conflict Without Casualties, a field guide for compassionate accountability, clinical psychologist and communication expert, Dr. Nate Regier tells us it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, conflict should actually be an energy source for good. Nate believes that most of us haven't even begun to harness the creative potential of conflict. And I can't wait to dig into this very important topic because Nate joins us today to talk about his book and his life's work. So who is Dr. Nate Regier? He is the CEO and co-founding owner of Next Element, a global leadership training and certification firm specializing in communication and conflict skills. He's an expert in social emotional intelligence and leadership positive conflict, neuropsychology, group dynamics, and leadership communication, among others. His last book, you may remember, was Beyond Drama, Transcending Energy Vampires. And it is my pleasure to welcome you, Nate, to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you, Marcel. What a pleasure to be here and to be with your listeners today. Really looking forward to it. Likewise, uh, this is one of those that I've been waiting for, and here we are. So before we dive into the book and your work, we always start with a gratitude moment. So what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Well, I'm almost to the empty nest syndrome. I've got three daughters, and uh, my youngest one is 16. The other two are out of the house already. One's still at college, and the other one's in graduate school. And my biggest gratitude coming out of the holidays is what a pleasure it is to have adult children home and children that, that respect and contribute around the house and appreciate the lessons that we taught them and, and our demonstrating skills that we, we tried to teach them growing up. So I'm so grateful for my children. And I look forward to being that grateful too. I have one six-year-old son and, and he contributes in a six-year-old level as much as he can, but he's, his, the world still revolves around him <laughs> at six. So I look forward to seeing him also develop into uh, you know, those teenage years when he can actually be more helpful to us. Thank you for that. So before we dive into the book, 
and your work and really drill down, I wanted to skim the surface a little bit. Let's start from the top. Why did you write this book? Why now? Well, this book has been a work in progress for a long time. When we started Next Element in 08, it was during the recession and no, nobody wanted to spend money on training and development. Uh, leadership skills. But we scrapped our way through teaching with communication models, personality models. We did some great work. But we kept running up against a wall where there just weren't good skills to communicate during conflict. And there were lots of models out there, but people had tried things and nothing was working. So we started experimenting with a few things we had learned and brought with us from our background. And after about three or four years of really refining and researching these techniques, and we had been training them with people for years, we thought, okay, let's put together the field guide that covers all of our techniques, all of our strategies, so people can take it home and learn and practice. So I was reading the start of the book, and you talk about some of your own personal experience. What's the worst case of conflict that you've experienced in your own work life? Well, I'm no stranger to conflict. I grew up the son of missionary parents in Africa. And my early childhood was pretty peaceful and idyllic in, in a very rural, tropical little town in Zaire. But high school, I was in Botswana. And it mm. was in the 80s during apartheid in South Africa when Nelson Mandela was still in prison. Oh. And so a lot of political violence, a lot of uh, discrimination, prejudice, apartheid. And uh, the most serious thing I ever faced was a nighttime raid by the South African government into the mm. capital city where I lived and they killed something like 13 political refugees that night in a targeted raid and bombed a house two doors down from me. Mm. And my family, we witnessed the whole thing and we were the first ones on the scene to discover the dead body of one of our good friends mm. and actually found out the next day that one of the bombs had not detonated yet. I mean, so that was a pretty scary situation and I remember thinking, there's just got to be a better way for people with differences and disagreements to talk to each other about this. Yeah, yeah, that's poss quite possibly the worst example of conflict that you can imagine. Uh, mm. uh, so in your own words, let's define conflict. What is conflict exactly? And are there different kinds of conflict? Yeah, that's a great question, because if we're going to talk about conflict, we, we yeah. should have a common definition. Right. And most people might go to Google and Google conflict. And if you do, I, I encourage you to do this. Start typing in conflict, and Google will, will automatically populate keywords and phrases that would go with it. And some of the most popular terms that are affiliated with conflict are mediation, management, mm -hmm. reduction, and so when you look at those words, all of them are as if conflict is the bad guy. And so conflict has this huge, this terrible rap. And I think probably because people have had a lot of negative experiences with it. But we think that conflict is pure and simple, a gap between what we want and what we're experiencing at any point in time. It's simply a gap, not good or bad, but that gap certainly contains energy. There's no question about that. But if we can simply look at conflict that way, it can really change what we do next. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's talk about sort of a, the mindset or the belief system that so many of us have around conflict. So a lot of people believe that things about conflict may not actually be based on reality. For example, the absence of conflict is peace and harmony. Or that, you know, we need to get along at work. And so implementing a zero tolerance policy for drama is actually a good thing. Is this true? 
No, absolutely not. And here's a great example why. A customer called us, a prospect called us and said, oh, you know, we need help. We got so much drama in our office. It's terrible. Everybody's gossiping and backstabbing each other and everything. And we need help. And usually the question I ask first is, you know, that sounds terrible. What have you tried so far? And here's what she had tried. She said, well, I told him to stop it because we have a zero tolerance for, for drama. Yeah. I said, okay, so what happened next? And she said, well, it stopped until it went underground. And it got even worse. And now it's all underground and it's behind the scenes and it's terrible and we can't even find it. Um, so now it's like kind of a cancer and a virus. And so what that shows us is that drama certainly is fulfilling a need. There's something going on here and nature hates a vacuum. So you can't just say, don't do drama. If you don't fulfill the unmet need or somehow scratch the itch that has been created by conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to expand that last question into the common myths that you talk about, that conflict, uh, that we hold on to these myths that we need to get out of our heads, right, Nate? So what, what are some examples of those myths? Well, you alluded to one earlier. You said peace is the absence of conflict. Okay. No, not at all. Maybe tranquility is the absence of conflict, but not peace. Conflict is like the sand in the oyster shell, Without that piece of sand and without the work and the grinding that the oyster does on that piece of sand, we wouldn't have the pearl. And so I really believe conflict has a, a purpose and has a reason. So, so it, it can have a productive outcome. And peace absolutely is not the absence of conflict. Okay. We're eventually going to get to the positive side of the conversation that views conflict in a positive role, but I'm so fascinated by these myths. So let me throw another one at you, okay? <laughs> and you tell me true or false. Conflict should be reduced or managed. False. That's false. Conflict should be stewarded and leveraged, not reduced and managed. It's kind of like electricity. Electricity in my hands is going to kill me. I don't know how to handle it. It scares the bejesus out of me. But the electricians just go in there and work on it. And they don't even turn off the power. So somehow they know how to work with it. And electricity can do amazing things. And it can also electrocute you and kill you. So conflict is an energy source to be stewarded and leveraged. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I'm guessing the majority, if not all of us, we will enter into conflict at one point or another throughout our lives. Let's face the fact that that's, that's being human. Yeah. But yet, most of us have made one or another mistake in our lives when entering into conflict. Can you talk about what some of those biggest mistakes are that we make on, on, on a regular basis? Yeah, yeah. Well, if conflict is just the energy of the gap, then all of us experience it all the time, every day. Yeah. Sometimes without our choosing, and sometimes we actually choose to create a gap. Um, but we can use that energy in one of two ways. And the mistakes that we make is when we use that energy in drama to fuel drama and all of the junk that goes with it. Um, and we did a survey a while back, surveyed thousands and thousands of people on just a few simple questions about what do they do when conflict comes knocking. And one of the questions was, I compromise to keep the peace. And a shocking 72% of people said, yes, I compromise to keep the peace. And so for whatever reason, I'm sure they're justified. They feel like they need to do it, whatever. And I'm not judging them for doing that. But what are we missing 
if 72% of people are withholding or holding back on any given day, what don't we know? What creative solutions are we missing? What conversations are we not having? And um, did you know that the number one cause of airline crashes is this very thing? Somebody knew. Somebody had a hunch, but they got shut down. They didn't get listened to, so they held back. And tragedy. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like they kind of knew the truth behind the situation, and yet they followed the rules instead of going with that, with what they felt was right, with the right thing to do. Or they didn't feel safe because, you know, maybe the head pilot is saying, hey, I've landed in this airport before you were even born. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. Or an air traffic controller that's a, you know, young kid tries to say something and the pilot says, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, let's uh, talk about the work of internationally acclaimed psychiatrist that uh, you've referenced and you attribute a lot of your own work to Dr. Stephen Karpman. And, uh, you know, you use one of his models in your own practice. So tell us about what he calls the drama triangle model, which, by the way, we see this triangle play out every day (laughs) in our workplaces. You might recognize them in a coworker, a leader or in yourself. So what is that? Yeah. So. Yeah, we, we definitely gained a lot of inspiration from his work and have and teach it as part of our um, kind of the precursor to our model. Mm-hmm. He he started his career in, as a family therapist doing psychi- psychiatric therapy. And he lives in he lives in San Francisco and loves basketball. He mm-hmm. just is a fanatic of basketball and would go watch any game he could get his, you know, get to. And he actually discovered the drama triangle by studying how an offense defeats a defense in basketball. Hmm. And he actually was the first person to to name and draw the triangle offense, which became the drama triangle. Because there's a lot of interesting things that happen on the court that also happen in relationships. And so this drama triangle identifies basically three predictable behavioral roles that we get into when we take conflict and turn it negative. Uh, and those uh, those three roles, man, they just describe what goes on in every boardroom and around every dinner table and probably every interaction we have with our kids. <laughs> Can you talk to us about those three roles? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. In, in no particular order or anything, one of the roles is the roles of the persecutor. And this is when in conflict, a person decides, hey, I'm okay, you're not okay. So therefore, it is okay for me to attack you, blame you, manipulate, criticize, use intimidation to get what I want, and basically just be a jerk because you're not okay and you deserve it. Another role is called the victim role. And the victim is just the opposite. In drama, they start to believe, you know, you're okay, but I'm not okay. And so therefore, it's okay for you to cross my boundaries, to attack me, to intimidate me, and I will accept it and I'll play the game. And I will feel bad and I will feel less than and small. But then there's the third role called the rescuer. And the rescuer loves to come in and save the day. And so their belief system is, hey, I'm fine. And you would be okay if you'd let me fix you. And if you'd let me, uh, you know, get involved in metal. So they're the prime meddlers. Um, they're a solution looking for a problem. And boy, when these three, when people get into these roles, it just gets humming. And those three roles all play off of each other. They all need each other. They all reinforce each other's behavior. And so it's just incredibly resistant to change and incredibly powerful dynamic. It's intoxicating, but it also is toxic for cultures. Wow. Wow. Okay. So of the three, 
Which one has more capacity to do harm in an organization? Hmm. I'm going to answer two questions out of that one. Okay. The one that can do the most harm and the one that has the most power, and they're not the same one. The one that can do the most harm, crazy as it may seem, is the rescuer. I think the rescuer is one of the most dangerous because if you've heard of the Peter Principle, um, this really is what happens, is people get promoted to their level of incompetence, which means we just keep for people who do good work and lots of work and are great problem solvers and take initiative, we promote them and they just keep doing it. And yeah. then they start doing it for everybody else because they don't know how to lead. So they just do everybody's job for them and give everybody solutions. And then we praise them for that. Oh, you know, you're such a self-starter. We, we want people with initiative. We want problem solvers. And so they're basically doing five FTEs of work, everybody feels dependent and resentful of them and they think it's a badge of honor. So I think that's the most dangerous one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to move into now talk about sort of the solutions and you got your, your model. And so if we want conflict without casualties, title of your book, we need to bring compassion into the conversation. Yeah. And it's one of my favorite topics I write about, yeah. it, I speak about it. You know, it's no surprise to me, Nate, that compassion, what you've found is the engine that turns conflict into a creative force for good. So talk yep. to us yep. about why compassion is key to conflict. You're right. It is the engine. That's why I'm so delighted to speak with you because I know, I know your work is all about this as well. Um, I believe that diversity exists for a reason. It's a beautiful part of the grand design of the universe. Mm. But because of diversity, we are inevitably going to have conflict. So my question is, if diversity is by design, then conflict must be by design as well. The only question is, what are we going to do with it? Certainly drama is how we could destroy with the energy of diversity. But compassion is how we create. So we're created different. Conflict is the energy source. Compassion is the engine by which we turn that energy, but not the kind of compassion that most people have heard of. Not this traditional kindness, unconditional love, servant leadership, alleviate suffering kind of thing. Mm. If you go back to the root of compassion, it comes from the Latin root meaning to suffer with. Wow. Not to suffer instead of, not to make them suffer, not to take it away. It's to be with people in the suffering because the purpose of our existence is not to alleviate suffering. It's to struggle purposefully and to create amazing things. We all know as humans, it's much more rewarding at the end of the day to have worked hard and struggled and have something to show for it than to have had an easy day. So compassion is about struggling with people to create something amazing. And that's when conflict can start doing miracles. Fascinating to me. So you couple compassion with accountability. That's, I think, yep. is, is the premise of your, your work. Yep. And that's really where the magic happens. So unpack compassionate accountability for us and the model yep. that you developed. Yeah. Well, if we go with kind of the traditional definition of compassion, of kind of kindness, empathy, care, then here are two opposing truths. Compassion without accountability gets you nowhere. You can't nicey-nice your way to a peace accord. You can't nicey-nice your way out of an abusive relationship. Um, but the opposite is also true. Accountability without compassion gets you alienated. 
we've all worked with those jerk leaders that are all about accountability and bringing the hammer down and everybody's scared of them and no one wants to be around them. So with our book, we said, you got compassion really puts the two together. And so compassionate accountability is the art and science of struggling with people in a spirit of dignity to create something amazing. Mm, mm, okay. So <laughs> I love the fact that, in, you know, I, to suffer with, to be with people in the suffering, to struggle purposely together. Do these things lead to results? Because after all, that's what we're after in business. Yeah, they do. They do. And day before yesterday, I was talk, talking with Scott Shute, who's the kind of the, the head of compassion and mindfulness at LinkedIn. And uh, many, many of your listeners probably have heard of, um, of their CEO um, and just Jeff Weiner and all the incredible stuff he's doing with compassion. Right. Well, Scott is in charge of implementing and codifying and training that in the culture. And he is on a mission about how critical compassion in the workplace is to business results. Mm. Um, because we know compassion drives inclusion. We know that compassion drives engagement. We know that compassion, compassion accountability um, helps people actually achieve. And we know that employees want to learn and grow and be held accountable and strive for higher things. You can't do that without accountability. But when in a spirit of compassion, then you also have engagement and inclusion and morale in your culture. Nate, can you give us some clear examples? Let's bring this conversation down to a really practical level. Of, yeah. of how to have positive conflict, maybe using your formula or in general. Yeah. I mean, what does that look like day to day as we go about our business? Well, compassion, at some point, we have to actually define and codify compassion and say, mm -hmm. what are the actual behaviors? What is the strategy? Because yeah. you can't teach it to people in the workplace if we don't have a specific measurable strategy. So we brought everything that we knew from the social sciences, behavioral psychology, um, um, wisdom traditions, and we identified that compassion is really in, in, is a cycle. It's a cycle of three interrelated skills that all need each other and all are part of the formula and they, all, and they happen in an order. And those skills are openness, resourcefulness, and persistence. And in my book, you'll see that as a cycle with openness, starts with openness, moves to resourcefulness, then to persistence, and then back. And these all need each other. They all go in a very specific order. And we've researched and, and tried all kinds of different ways to have conflict without casualties. And what we've discovered is the formula ORPO is the most effective strategy, which is open, resourceful, persistent, open. And so that creates an actual formula where we can engage in conflict in a spirit of dignity to create something amazing. So the starting point is openness. What does that look like exactly once you enter into the conflict? Well, let's assume there's a gap. And there's assume we got energy in that gap and, it can, and we want to deal with that energy in a productive way. The first thing to do with openness, openness is all about emotional transparency and creating a safe place. Because how can we have conflict without casualties if it's not safe? And if it's very clear up front, we're not here to hurt or undermine or beat each other. This is not an adversarial engagement. So openness can look look like me expressing empathy for you in the struggle. It could be me affirming and validating your experience of what just happened. Or it could be me disclosing how I'm experiencing the gap mm. by saying something like, I'm really afraid about what's going on in our relationship. Or, yeah. you know, I can show empathy for you and say, I can see you're really scared about this transition. I remember what that was like. Yeah. 
Okay. So that so, sets the stage. We're not going to hurt each other. We're going to show our cards because we're in this together. All right. Let's go through the cycle. So then does openness then lead to becoming resourceful? Yes. Openness then paves the way and opens the door for resourcefulness. Mm -hmm. If all we did was openness, all we would be doing is, is taking off our bulletproof vest and waiting for someone to shoot us. And that's why most people are so scared of openness because they say it's vulnerable. Well, it is if you just sit there afterwards. So resourcefulness is the step about starting to get into problem solving. This ah. is where we engage from the head. We move from our heart. We go to our head and say, okay, what's going on? What, what do we bring to the table? What, are, what do we need to know? What don't we know? What assumptions are going on? So we start gathering information and resources to understand the gap mm -hmm. and start figuring out what we're going to do about it. This is really the collaboration stage, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Brainstorming, if you're looking at more kind of a corporate innovation process, yeah. it would be that. All right. And then that paves the way to persistence? Yep. Okay. What and does that look like? Most people think that persistence should come first because how many parents or coaches or teachers or bosses walk into a situation, the very thing they do is, is they notice what people aren't doing or what rules are being broken or what standards aren't being met. There's a place for that. It's just not at the beginning. So persistence is about getting crystal clear about our priorities, our boundaries, our principles. What's at stake here and why is it so important for us to do this? Because it's not fun to do conflict. I don't like to do conflict. So why does it matter? Why do I care? And why should we struggle together in this? That's what persistence is all about. Yeah. Okay. And then it brings it back full circle to openness again. Yeah, because persistence is hard work and it's scary. And so coming back to open always bookends the conversation or the, or the engagement by saying, let's remind each other we are valuable, we're safe, we care about each other, we don't want to harm each other. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so how does this cycle and bringing conflict into the, the creative process, right, yeah. actually impact organizations? We do uh, follow up to our main training. We do a lot of application lessons and that's where the meat really happens. So let's take a real basic example of an apology. Let's say I've dropped the ball. I've made a mistake. I've done something that, is, that has, has led to some harm. There's ramifications and I want to come clean. I, I want to apologize, which by the way, I think is a lost art these days. Um, so let's use ORPO for an apology. First thing I do is identify how I personally feel about what happened. And actually today, I moved an appointment on someone because I had double booked and I apologized. Mm -hmm. So I said, I feel, I feel badly about this or I feel sad about what I did. Then we go to resourceful and we get, we get crystal clear about do I understand what I did, how it affected people and what the ramifications are. So then I said, I double booked and I'm asking you to reschedule. I understand that this could cause some problems for you. I understand there's ramifications, you know? And then I go to persistence and I get crystal clear about what's at stake. And I say, it's important to me that you trust me to keep appointments or your relationship with me really matters and I care about being on your podcast, for example. Um, and then I go back to open and I say something like, I'm nervous about how you're going to respond. Or I might just say, um, I might empathize and say, I can appreciate if this puts you in a bind. 
I've been rescheduled on too, and I understand how difficult it is. So the way it all sounds, it's a simple email I sent. Actually, it was a LinkedIn message, and it just had four sentences. It said, I feel badly. I double booked, and I'd like to ask you to reschedule. I appreciate that this may cause some trouble in your appointment or in your schedule. I really value our relationship, and I really want to be on your podcast. It's important to me. You know, how do you feel about this? Yeah, it's obvious to me that so much of this is based on authentic communication uh, and modeling that for others as well. And really, I mean, if you're a leader and you're modeling that, you're really setting the stage for your culture because leadership, it starts at the top, modeling these behaviors and how to model positive conflict. And then hopefully that will just filter down to elsewhere in your organization. Oh, it does. Just... Last year, I was working with one of the largest car rental companies in America with all of their call center managers, like 240 of them, and all of them manage remote call center reps that work from their homes, and they have goals, they have expectations, they have numbers they have to reach. Their struggle was, we support and we help our people, and we give and give and give, and they just don't meet the requirements. What are we supposed to do? And what they realized when we taught them ORPO is that they weren't practicing full compassion. They were being open and valuing the person. They were being incredibly resourceful, but they were not setting boundaries at persistence. They were not getting clear about what the expectations were, and there were no consequences for not meeting them. Mm. And so when they started using ORPO, what they saw is these call center reps stepped up, started solving their own problems. One of them even organized a support group for others to help them meet their goals. And all of a sudden, these call center managers are like, wait, I was doing all the work. And now we're in this together. And it feels like a collaborative process. Yeah. So again, ORPO, which stands for it's the compassion cycle. And if we go through the cycle, it starts with openness. That's the O. R is resourcefulness. P is persistence. And then we close the cycle with openness again. ORPO. That's the compassion cycle. Wow. And this stuff really works. I'm just dumbfounded by its simplicity. And yet it's so hard for us because we're talking about this is the soft skills area of business that is so hard for so many of us to really tap into. It is. Um, I, was, I heard Seth Godin speak at the ATD International Conference in DC this last spring. And he said, stop calling them soft skills. They're real skills. These are yeah. life skills. And so we, these are, are, these matter. These are yeah. these are definitely critical skills. And yes, they have a difference. I got an email. I got an email from an executive that attended one of my workshops, and she emailed me a week later and said, "I went home and used ORPO with my neighbor. For six years, we've been feuding about our dogs and the fence. Who who hasn't had this? <laughs> and I went and tried ORPO, and we sat there and we worked it out, and we had a productive conversation and came up with a solution. And she said, "I was stunned." that I really thought this relationship was intractable. Mm, mm. Nate, I want to close out this part of the conversation and uh, we'll, we'll touch on a few things here in a minute. But to tell me, what do you hope to accomplish with this book? Our mission at Next Element, we exist to bring more compassion to every workplace in the world. Mm-hmm. That's why we exist. And the way that we're going about that is to produce simple, elegant, powerful, and scalable methodologies that anybody can learn and use to do compassion. So 
we, that's what we want to do. We want to shift the energy balance in the world from drama to compassion because conflict is here to stay and we need it. The only problem is how are we going to use that energy? I think conflict might be the biggest untapped energy resource in the world. So let's get after it and start using it to build things. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about you now, the person <laughs> who are your mentors. Man. Um, my wife is unbelievable. Um, her support and her belief in me and in the vision of what we're doing is incredible. Mm. Um, one of my other mentors is Dr. Taby Kaler. He developed the, the process communication model, which is a behavioral model of, of personality differences used by NASA and Pixar studios and some others. But it was the first model that really helped me understand me. Um, and he has just been incredible. And since my father died, um, in 2010, he's, he's become even more important as kind of like a second dad to me. Great. Nate, if you could have a stimulating conversation over dinner with anyone past or present dead or alive, who would that person be? Hmm. Man, can I bring two people to the table? Yes. <laughs> um, one of them, I've actually met them both virtually, and I am I would love to have dinner with um, Stephen Treziak, who wrote the book Compassionomics. Unbelievable, his head full of research on compassion. And I'd like to have dinner with um, Jeff Weiner from LinkedIn and talk about his journey and the incredible work that they're doing at LinkedIn. Just pick his brain. That's fantastic. Well, I got one of the two actually coming <laughs> to the podcast, and that's Dr. Stephen. He's uh, uh, slated for, I think, I believe, uh, in March. So I look oh, you're in that for a treat. You're mm -hmm. in for a treat. Yeah. And uh, Jeff Weiner, I'm still banging down the LinkedIn door. Hopefully one day he'll answer. <laughs> well, he's busy. He's doing incredible work. And I think everybody wants, would like to have dinner with yeah. him. Um, I mean, Oprah got to. <laughs> once you <laughs> start working with Oprah, it's kind of tough. Yeah. Yeah. She beat me to him. <laughs> yeah. So, Nate, we uh, bring every podcast home with two final questions. And here they are. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like our listeners to know? This is going to sound a little crude, but what's really tugging at my heart is that I think soft skills are for hard asses. Okay. And soft skills can be made accessible to people who don't think that it's for them and don't think that they can do it. So I'm really working every day to figure out how do we make compassion accessible and sexy yeah. and achievable for kind of maybe more old school leaders or people who just don't think that they have a soft spot or don't think they have empathy. I want to crack that nut because it's so transformative and they have it within them. They can do it. Yeah. And they are the ones that probably needed the most. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. What is that one thing you would like our listeners to absolutely walk away with that's going to make a difference in their lives? Here's one thing that can make a huge difference. The compassion cycle in the formula for con positive conflict says, start it open. One of the most powerful things any leader can do is start it open by disclosing your motives, your emotional motives. Let your people know how you're feeling, and how you want to feel. Leaders just don't tell people what their motives are, and then we're all left guessing. And so one of the most powerful things you can do is be vulnerable and say, I'm feeling insecure, and I want this project to be a success because I will feel better about my role as a leader. Help me. Now we can struggle together. It's transformative, and you wouldn't believe it. When we work with teams, we'll ask the, the, the followers, if your leader did that, 
what would what would have the impact? And they all say, oh, his street cred would go through the roof. And we asked the leader, would you do that? Oh, no, no, no. That would be weak and vulnerable, and they would think I'm a pushover. So that's the biggest thing you can do is just disclose your motives and your emotions. Well, I definitely have some takeaways for me personally as, as I've learned from you. Uh, one of those things will f- is that compassion uh, isn't, like you said, just about kindness or empathy. And, and I'm a big proponent of servant leadership, but you have to have the accountability part mm-hmm. of compassion intertwined, yeah. right, in there as well. So that's a really key takeaway. And I hope that everyone has gotten away with this new notion that conflict is not bad and conflict could be actually be made for good. And I'm going to quote you again. If we can think of conflict as suffering together, suffering with, to be with people in the suffering, to struggle purposefully, those words are going to be embedded in my mind forever, Nate, to struggle together purposefully. That blows my mind. We can actually, when we can sit down at the table and be human about that and realize, okay, you know what? There's another way to experience conflict. Yeah. We're going to see amazing things happen. Amazing things. Marcel, it's time that we reimagine compassion because every human being is not only valuable, they're also capable and they're also responsible. And we can bring that all home with compassion. Yeah. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. If people want to connect with you, Nate, where did they go? How can they do that? Well, you can look me up, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Next Element. Right now, we're really excited about the Compassion Mindset, which is our new enterprise-level program. I'm, I'm kind of in my studio here. You can see it behind. But if you go to thecompassionmindset.com, there's some really cool stuff there. Fascinating. Thanks for joining us today. And I'll come back with my final thoughts in just a minute. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It's pretty simple. When people misuse conflict, and we all do it, it becomes the very thing we don't want. Toxic drama. And the cost to our teams and companies can be staggering. The alternative is compassionate accountability. Struggling with others through conflict. That's not a bad thing when compassion is the centerpiece. I want to thank you for joining us today. If this episode brought you value, will you please share it? And leave us a positive review and rating on iTunes. We greatly appreciate it as we increase the Love in Action tribe across the world. Next week, I sit down and chat with Michael Ventura, founder and CEO of Sub Rosa and author of Applied Empathy, The New Language of Leadership. Until then, don't forget, Love in Action. It's what will truly set your leadership apart. Give it a try. Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, Let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.